0: Doing the impossible is not something you make happen. It's something that you allow to happen. After conducting over 10,000 personal and group coaching sessions over the last decade, author and personal coach Jason Dries has unlocked the simple yet effective formula to accept and create success in your life on the most basic, instinctive level. In his latest book, Do the Impossible, Jason gives readers access to the same life-changing principles he provides in his personal coaching sessions. Ready to embrace success as a state of being? In this exclusive listener offer, get your copy of *Do the Impossible* for fifty percent off from the publishers at Bigger Pockets. To get your copy of *Do the Impossible* for fifty percent off any format, go to www.biggerpockets.com/impossible50. That's fifty percent off any format. www.biggerpockets.com/impossible50. This is a bigger problem with the federal government that we don't we don't preserve institutional expertise as efficiently as we should, that it shouldn't have been that hard to find those guys right away uh, to deal with the problem. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't rely on the accident of John Bolton firing Tom Bossert.
1: Welcome to Bray, with Donnie Deutsch. I'm Donnie Deutsch. And this is a podcast dedicated to a simple premise that, um, Everything today is a brand. Every person, every celebrity, every athlete, every product, every corporation, every movement, every religion is a brand. And we do two things on the show. Um, first, we do a big interview. And today is with, I-, I think, arguably one of the most important nonfiction authors of our time, if not the most, Michael Lewis. has uh, written mm-hmm. countless books, Blindside, Moneyball, Big Short, Liar's Poker. We're going to talk to him about a lot of stuff and his brand. And But first, we do what we call Brands of the Week on the show which basically we look at the brands that are kind of driving the zeitgeist, who's up, who's down, uh, and let's get right into it. Our first brand of the week are the Democrats, brand down for the Democrats. Uh, here's why, and it's it, uh, poster John Delavope, uh, who's a Harvard pollster, this is scary to me for the Denver Party. They're, they're, since the 1980s, youth participation in national elections has shown too impossible to miss spikes. And that is the huge turnout among 18 to 30-year-olds propelled Democrats into power. They backed Biden by a 25-point margin in 2020. Um, here's, the, here's why we, they get a brand down for the, the, uh, for the Democrats. Approval rating among 18 to 30 is in the low 30s in Gallup and other polls. Uh, that's pretty scary. It's bad enough that his overall his overall approval rating is hovering around 40. But he's in low 30s with a target group that he won by 25 points. That does not well bode well for the midterm. So uh, the youth vote, is, which is an automatic Dem turnout vote, uh, is certainly not feeling good about Biden and the Democrats. Brand down for Donald Trump for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, mainly the brand down, and he, he gets a brand down on the big lie. Here's what's interesting about the big lie. And the big lie is, of course, that the election was rigged. A new Morning Consult political poll says, get this, that 67% of Americans think that if you tout the big lie, if you're a public official and you get up there and say the election was false, you should be prosecuted. It should be a crime. So almost three quarters of Americans think it's a crime to say what Donald Trump is basing his entire foundation of his entire... um, uh, political comeback, if you will. That's all you need to about about Trump. And also, secondly, Trump's social, uh, his network is a, his new uh, um, social network is an adjunct failure. It's supposed to be up and full running and they have problems with it. Day one, they had 200,000 subscribers. They're down to 10,000 subscribers a day, which doesn't even show up on the, on the uh, app store charts. Uh, the two top executives have quit. Uh, and if you invest in Trump Social, you've already lost forty percent of your money. And just one thing we most New Yorkers know, other than a couple of successful buildings he's had, he's been a business failure. Everything he's touched outside of real estate has been a disaster, from stakes to water and everything in between. So, brand down as always for Donald Trump. Brand up for Pennsylvania Governor John Fetterman. Uh, John Fetterman is the front row, front runner. Uh, he's lieutenant governor. I'm sorry of, of um, Pennsylvania. He's running for Senate. And he's way out in front. He's a character. He's six foot eight. He wears hoodies. You know, he's got the goatee. But what's interesting about Fetterman is that, you know, he's for very progressive things, you know, such as marijuana legalization, $15 $15 minimum wage and transgender rights yet he's running as a populist. And I talked about this on, on one of our early shows and how populism is the way Democrats need to brand themselves, even if they're progressives. Progressive in a general election is not a good word, but he's, he's one, one of these characters that is different than the rest. And that's half of it in politics. That's the way Trump won. You know, He, he looks different. He talks different. He acts different. He's a man of the people. Uh, I think he's going to beat whoever the Republicans bring forward. And speaking of Republicans running for Senate, uh, one more brand down for Donald Trump. He he endorsed Emmett Oz, who has about as many credentials to run for Senate as Donald Trump had to run for president. He said, by the way, the reason, he says, because it's on TV. And if you're on TV, you're popular. And that was his that was his uh, intelligent response. Brandaff, Oklahoma. Oklahoma lawmakers approved the bill banning abortions. Um, the final approval of the bill passed the Oklahoma House last Tuesday. It basically says that you can sue doctors who perform abortions and file civil suits up to 10,000 against anyone who may try to try a, to perform an abortion. There you go. Another one of those really moving forward states, Oklahoma, way to go Sooners. A brand up for a young man. Uh, he's an eight-year-old, a Sawyer Robbins. Um, of course, Don't Say Gay, which is in Florida and that it's trying to happen in other states also. And he's got more common sense than the, the governor of uh, Florida, Ron DeSantis. Here's, you know, we, we talk about these things. You know, Don't Say Gay is, of course, that you can't, uh, talk about alternative lifestyle, alternative you know lifestyles, gender choices, things like that with kids under third grade, and I and the one some people go well, of course you shouldn't talk about things you know sexually oriented orient- orientation under third grade, and as a parent I can say but here's the way an eight year old puts it, and here's what's interesting. It's something, this is, this is uh, Sawyer Robbins, and he kind of breaks it down to real life stuff. It's something they're not supposed to be talking about because when they're talking about don't say gay, they're technically talking about gay, he said. He said, he understood the bill is this. He said, what if someone's parents are gay? He asked, you can't talk about your parents because they're gay. The first thing I sort of, that happened to me not long ago, he said I, said, I was telling a friend about my parents before this was a thing, and I didn't know what lesbian, and he didn't know what lesbian meant. So I told him what that meant. I told him it means a girl when a girl marries a girl. He said, that's weird. I said, I know. It's not their fault. They fall in love. He added, but now if a friend doesn't know what that is, I can't tell him. I can't even have the conversation we were having because of the Don't Say Gay bill. So this little boy couldn't even talk t- talk to another boy or talk in school about his parents. What happens when they when you draw pictures of your family? Is he not allowed to draw? that he has two, two moms. He goes, it's stupid. It needs to go away because people might feel left out and might feel really sad and stuff. Everybody should be able to love everybody and be able to talk about it in school. So out of the mouth of babes. You know, we talk about these things in very political terms. And you hear an eight-year-old talk about it and kind of the travesty of it really comes to light. Brand up for libraries. Libraries are more popular than ever. That's a good thing. Even as people borrow fewer and fewer books, researchers from data and analytics group, words rated, looked at nearly 17,000 libraries over over the last three decades and found that these institutions aren't dying in digital age, they actually may be thriving. Although visits have dropped by 21%. There are actually more people borrowing books than ever before. Specifically, over 174 million people in the country are registered at a local library. Uh, overall, library collections are now bigger and more diverse than ever, growing by 113% in 2009. So in this digital age, it's nice to hear that libraries are still thriving. Brand up for Fortnite. Uh, Fortnite, uh, last week, uh, well, actually for two weeks, between March 20th and April 3rd, Dedicated $144 million, their entire all their revenue, all their profits, to Ukraine relief. I mean, there you go. I think corporations can really, really make a difference. You've got Holland America, another brand-up corporation. They parked one of their boats um, in Rotterdam, and they're taking Ukrainian refugees. They say they can accommodate over 50,000 people who fled the war in Ukraine over time. Uh, 1500 people at a time and and i that's something these companies need to do step step up you know i i can, if you do name a corporation or a company i could say something they could be doing for ukraine and i particularly these two companies Fortnite and holland america let's give them a brand up hmm i don't know how you, you brand down for working from home and here's why And I agree with this 100%. Most managers would fire workers or cut their pay if they refused to return to the office. Good hire a company that does employment background checks surveyed 3,500 American managers on their thoughts and feelings about remote work, return to the office mandates, and their preferred working model. Among the respondents, 77% they would be willing to take action against employees who demanded to work fully remote. Uh, The U.S. Bureau of Statistics shared uh, that only 10% of Americans work remotely. But I'm one of these guys, and I've talked about this on the show before, people need to go to work, uh, particularly young people. You really lose a lot of the experience and the mentoring by not being there. And if I was still running my company today, work at home would not be an option. And maybe I would lose some employees, but people need to be at work. It's one thing when it's not safe. And as uh, the CEO of, I think, Morgan Stanley said, if it's, you feel safe enough to walk into a restaurant, you can feel safe enough to go into work. Brand up for Tiger Woods. Uh, didn't win the Masters, but, you know, I've there's no athlete in the history of sports, and that includes Michael Jordan, that includes Muhammad Ali, that has an, had an effect on their sport like Tiger Woods. Did Tiger Woods introduced golf to young people. Period. Golf would not be a hip young sport with young people playing without Tiger. He doubles the ratings when he plays on TV. And look, Jordan's Jordan, Ali's Ali, but. basketball had come back before Jordan with Magic and Larry, and he brought golf back, so brand up for Tiger Woods. Brand up for a certain kind of sports bar. It's a sports bar in Oregon that will show only women's sports. There you go. Anyone can find a bar that shows men's sports, but in Portland, Oregon, um, Jenny Nugent, I hope I pronounced that right, wanted to change that, the sports bra, Opened its doors this month North, with a mission to make great food and delicious drinks and provide a space, supports, and powers, promotes girls and women in sports in the community. So, you can, if you go in there, it's only women's sports. Now, as a marketer, I would say you're losing a big part of the audience because women like guys playing sports, also. I'm not saying you shouldn't have women. I think a better idea would be maybe have one dedicated TV in a sports bar or two dedicated to women's sports. I'm all for that. But not quite sure how this venture is going to play out, but I salute anybody going their own path. So brand up for the sports bra. Brand up for Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is the best fast food chain, according to Gen Z. Um, Chick-fil-A's chain was not the top choice for 16% of teens. It was followed by 14% Chipotle, 13% starbucks and there's a big drop, 4% McDonald's, 3% Dunkin' Donuts. So for young people today, Gen Z, teenagers, they beat Chick-fil-A 4X, versus 16% McDonald's to Chick-fil-A. There's no comparison, so that's where the future is. Buy Chick-fil-A. It's a private company, so you can't buy the stock. Brand down, big brand down for handguns. People living with handguns face twice the risk of homicide, study says. It's a new study by Stanford University. People living with handgun owners were 2.33 times as likely to become victims of homicide. And they're 2.83 times as likely to die from homicides involving firearms. So, Interesting stat that if you have a gun in your home, that you're somebody in that household is more likely to face people living with that gun or twice the risk of homicide. No surprise there. Cracker Jack, big brand down. Cracker Jack is introducing, now this is not going to be popular, but I'm sorry I have to. They're introducing Cracker Jill a, on separate packages, a new character, and their reasoning, which I agree with the reasoning, is they want to give more attention and prominence to women's sports. Cracker Jack is associated with sports. But I'm a believer of some names are just names, and they, you know, Sarah Lee Pound Cake is not Sammy Lee Pound Cake, and Bazooka Joe Gum is not Bazooka Joanne Gum, and it's okay to have a Mister or a Mrs. in your product name, and it doesn't mean we have to even the score. Uh, I'm, I think it's an iconic name, and I think they're diluting it, so I'm going to get some heat from this. But brand down for Cracker Jack, brand down for Burger King, um, just like um, Pop Tarts was being sued, they're being sued by customers who claim the Whopper. It's small and advertised. It's a uh, class action suit. Four Burger King customers are suing the chain over its marketing, claiming the company makes the burger look about 35% bigger in advertising reality. Here's what I wonder these people, what what are you doing with your lives that you took the time to notice that something in a picture, by the way, all pictures of food look better than they and more robust. Than, than they do in, in just like all people in ads look better and more robust. than they, that's, that's what we have, photography and, uh, uh, you know, all the edit, all the accoutrement you could do with pictures. I don't think anybody is buying that burger because of the picture, because it looked a little bigger and a thing. So I think some of you people need lies But we got to give a brand down for Burger King because they're, they're, they're under suit. And finally, a brand down for Lucky Charms. This is very upsetting. According to New York Post, the FDA is investigating illnesses linked to Lucky Charm. Um, hundreds of consumers have reported becoming ill after eating Lucky Charms cereal. 139 consumers complained that they began vomiting and experiencing diarrhea after eating a bowl of Lucky Charms. That's a small number. So I'm going to rescind my brand now for Lucky Charms. Uh, Yes, 100 people got sick, but I'm a big Lucky Charms guy. So I'm going to rescind it and give them a brand we'll see. And those are our brands of the week. Let's get right to our interview with uh, Michael Lewis. Uh, You are going to really enjoy this. One of the smartest, most interesting guys around. And here's my interview with author Michael Lewis. There's that sound again. It's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Let me say this simple. If you got anything to sell, Shopify is the way to go. It's a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business, customized for your needs with a great-looking online store that brings your idea to life, and tools to manage day-to-day and drive sales. Making your idea real opens endless possibilities. Uh, Shopify believes in liberating commerce for all because entrepreneurship has the power to drive communities forward and commerce reinforced for good. I have experience with Shopify. It's the way you got got to sell anything. It's Shopify. Get started by building and customizing your online store with no coding or design experience. Access powerful tools to help you find customers, drive sales, manage your day-to-day. Plus with 24-7 support, you're never alone. It's more than a store. Shopify grows with you. This is a possibility powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash Donnie, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash Donnie right now. Shopify.com slash Donnie. This was a good one, guys. Go go to Shopify and check it out. I am thrilled with today's guest, Michael Lewis. Uh, Michael Lewis... Uh, I think is by far the most important nonfiction writer of our time. Um, his credentials speak for themselves. He's written over a dozen books, all of them either number one times bestsellers or bestsellers. Five have been made to movies, three of them, The Big Short, Moneyball, and Blindside, we're made either Oscar or Oscar-nominated movies. Um, he's, his most latest book that I want to talk a lot about is The Premonition of Pandemic Story, which came out last year. He's got a new audiobook of one of his classics, Liar's Poker, one of my favorite, and his Against the Rules podcast, episode one of season three. And we're going to talk about the first two seasons, just incredible stuff. Michael, thanks so much for being here. Donnie, thanks for having me. All right, I want to start with Wall Street Journal has a quote. He says, his calling card echoed by untold critics and readers is this, he makes boring stuff interesting. That's the Wall Street Journal. Do we, do we like that? Yeah, we like that. So I, I, I do think, that
0: I, I think I'm opportunistic as a writer. I think I'm more opportunistic than than most writers. I think a lot of writers kind of come at their job idealistically. And I, I come at it like as a former, a little bit of as a former Wall Street person.
1: Yeah.
0: And and I'm looking for arbitrage opportunities. <laughs> and the, the arbitrage opportunity is when the world thinks something's boring and I think it's really interesting. Yeah. If I can find a subject that I, gets me up in the morning gets my juices flowing, but nobody else thinks they're interested in it, that that's an opportunity because because it, it's an opportunity to take everybody's attention and say, hey, look at this.
1: How do you, how do you find, uh, give me the magic moment. Take the blind side, for instance. How did you stumble across that young man in that story? How, how does that, just give me the genesis of, okay, this appeared in front of me.
0: It did appear in front of me. So it, it's a bit of a story, so you gotta give me a minute to tell it.
1: Please, that's what we're here for.
0: I was going through Memphis, Tennessee anyway in 2004 maybe, five, uh, whenever, five. And I was in the process of writing a little book about my high school baseball coach and about the importance of that man in my life as a teacher.
1: Which is, and which I is now, which is one of your, one of your podcast seasons, called,
0: right? Okay. Call, call coach. Right. Right. And I, we, we, we used it. That's some of that material for the podcast. And I thought I really ought to talk to my former teammates. Uh, and, one of my favorite former teammates was Sean Tui, who was the—he's the Tim McGraw character in the Blind Side. He's the dad in the Blind Side okay. family. Had not we'd been in school together from age five to age seventeen, and I had not seen him since high school. Uh so it was really kind of funny. He picks me up at the airport, and ostensibly to go to his house, just talk about Coach Fitzgerald. And I—two things happened that I can't shake. I—I could—I can't shake my memory. The first thing is. The first thing he says to me when I get in the car is, "So who writes your books?" <laughs> and I, and I said, "I write, I write my books." And he goes, "No, I know you're out there like marketing them and talking to people about them and all that. You're really good at selling them." He says, "But who puts the words on the page?" And I said, "Sean, I, I put the words on the page." He goes. No, you don't. You're a dumbass, just like me who sat in the back of English class and got Cs. There's yeah, you, no way you were you write fuck, those books. You were
1: fuck up growing up in high school. Yeah, and, and high no, school right. There's no way
0: you write those books. So you're lying to me. So like the whole way to his house is me trying to persuade him, I write my books. But then we get there and in his living room is a six foot five inch, 350 pound African-American kid sitting on the sofa, 16 years old. Sean doesn't even introduce me to him. Shows me around the house and off we go. And I said like, well, what was, who's he? And he says, oh, and then he tells me the story. He was on the you know, bus stop in the snow in his shorts, and he was clearly homeless, and he'd come to their kid's school. And he said, he's Leanne's project. Leanne was his wife. Right. And, I, and he says, I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I mean, what he basically meant was that they were taking this, this destitute, basically effectively orphaned, homeless child uh, off the streets of Memphis and tr- and turning him into a rich, white, evangelical Republican right. who, 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 who rooted for Ole Miss. And I started watching this thing. And it was this—it's a—in cl- some ways it's a very parademic story. It's a very classic—it's a Pygmalion story. like the, the, And I was watching him interact with the family. And while I was doing this, I was on the heel—Moneyball had come out, right? And I was talking to professional football teams about doing something in professional football. And the whole professional football story was um, was about like how they distributed money across their payrolls because they all had the same amount of money to spend. And when you started looking at what they'd done with their payrolls, you saw that there was this position, the left tackle, who 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 protected the quarterback's blind side, that had gone from being the least, the lowest paid person on the field to among the most highly paid people on the field. And as I'm watching Michael, Laura, and the Tuies. Uh, as is just a separate story and thinking like, this is, he's my high school friend. I'm not going to write about this, but I'm just interested in it. Sean calls me and says, um, Michael has just been identified as a future NFL left tackle. And, and, and all of a sudden, that kid was on the receiving end of national attention. And all of a sudden, he was this prized possession a year into staying with them. When no one really had any idea about this before. Sean was training him to be like a j- junior college basketball player so right. he could get him into college. Right. So I thought, ah, so that, what's the story? Um, the story was, they all, this kid goes from, you know, the least valued kid in America to one of the most highly valued kids in America. What are all the forces at work here? And, and pa- one of the forces was what had happened in NFL football to prize what he could do so uniquely well uh, but another force was a family and a mom. Yeah, yeah. And so these two stories kind of came together in my head and it became
1: the book. And I know how Liars Parker came about. We're going to talk about your time at Solomon Brothers. And where'd you find Billy Bean uh, for Moneyball? How did that come? I mean, but one of my five favorite movies of all time, by the way, I've mu- probably have watched that movie a dozen times in addition to I love that reading movie. the book. I love
0: the movie too. The, I love in, the movie too in and in I had addition nothing to, to do with it.
1: Yeah, but the, the, you had everything to do with it. The book, no, the book I mean, is spectacular. But, but, but how did you how, uh, how, give me the derivation of that? I'm just that's what I'm fascinated stuff. Your, your stuff after you read it, you go, okay, duh, this is a story that needs to be told, and I, I kind of go like, where, where, where where's the nugget? Where did it start? So that's funny.
0: I mean, they are always it's very undignified beginnings, all of them. They always start like it's like going to visit my old high school friend. I find this story. Um, I had just started to pay attention to baseball again in the late '90s because it would just I'd been out of the country for a little bit, and And I was struck by the free agency had hit in a big way. And the salaries are starting to explode. And the first question I had, and I was watching the game and they said that the right fielder was paid 150 grand and the left fielder was paid $8 million. And I had a question. The question was like, how pissed off is the right fielder when the left fielder drops a fly ball? Is there like class resentment emerging on the, in the, on a But And you would think it might happen, right? Like, you know, you're not that much better than me. How come you're getting paid that much more than me? That kind of thing. So I started watching the money on the field. And then it was it became clear that, that the resentment between the players wasn't a thing. That what was a thing was the difference in the, in the money that was between organizations. And that you had, whoa, the Oakland A's have got a $30 million payroll and the New York Yankees have $120 million payroll in an efficient marketplace. The A's shouldn't be able to compete. I mean, the, the Yankees should just buy all the best be- baseball players, and the A's are screwed. So that seemed to be a legitimate question, and I, I, I looked at this, called Billy Bean up, I sent him a note, and said, uh, "I'm interested in, in talking to you about this question, like what you're doing." And he said, "Come on in." And when I got there, this is this is like the arbitrage opportunity. Uh, he said, he said. Uh, This is the question I spend my life thinking about money, like how I how I find bargain baseball players, how I get rid of expensive ones. All of my life is basically like a Wall Street trader. And no one ever asked me about it because the sports writers all think this is beside the point. It's all I do. And he says, so I'm interested in talking to you because no one has talked to me about this.
2: Power blackouts. They happen every year. But guess what, blackouts? You've met your match. Say hello to Goal Zero, the leader in affordable home power backup systems and solar generators. Goal Zero's generators power your fridge, freezer, lights, Wi-Fi, TV, and more with clean power. Their home backup systems, like the Yeti 3000X, have no fuel, no fumes, no noise, and no maintenance. Just good, clean energy that keeps your home up and running. They offer a range of products and affordable price points, from power stations that can provide a half-day's worth of power to solar generators and home backup systems that can keep you powered for one, two, or three days. Plus, they're all portable, so you can take your power with you when you go camping, tailgating, and more. So yeah, take that, blackouts. Our power is here to stay. Have peace of mind when blackouts hit. Go to GoalZero.com to learn more.
0: And that, I thought, wow. I mean, that that was the beginning of it. But for for it to sort of, it takes it usually takes many months before I get conviction about the book, and the book side of things. It really was. I mean, there was a moment. Uh, it was a funny moment. It was that that I was interviewing the players to see what they made of this whole science experiment that was the Oakland A's, and I was I was in. Uh, the clubhouse interviewing a player after a game and i for, for whatever reason i noticed for the first time the oakland a's coming out of the showers so i saw them naked for the first time no, and it was a them, right? it was a repellent <laughs> sight it, they were just they were fat they were right. you know they were they were misshapen in various right. ways funny. and i Probably. thought they just these aren't professional athletes right. and and i said that to the front office and they said that's actually one of the points said we find bargains when they don't look right Uh, that if we find in the statistical analysis, they can do something, if they don't look right, the market doesn't see their value. So that's when I thought, ah, this is a book. It's a book about, it's a book about, again, about value, about how people get valued or misvalued by a marketplace, not just baseball players. Baseball players are corporate employees who you would think of any corporate employee is going to be properly valued to be them. It's a pretty simple job. They're watched by everybody. They got stats. Uh, if they're misvalued, who isn't misvalued? And I thought that's the center of a. I got to figure out how to tell a story, but that's at the center of yeah. the thing. Yeah, it's, um, it. it's just so it, it usually starts with like a question right, or a,
1: something or wrong, a why? curiosity. Yeah. I, and
0: why? So why is that that way? And most of the time, I have those questions. It doesn't lead anywhere, right? But sometimes it leads
1: somewhere. Obviously, anyway, Elias, Elias Parker came from your time at Solomon Brothers. It's fascinating your how you went to school and what you studied. And how you ended up as a bond trader, because the, the line doesn't make sense with everything you studied for. And where I know you went to London School of Economics, but still nobody would have ever thought you as a bond trader at Solomon Brothers. Bond salesman,
0: the traders oh, would be okay. offended.
1: Okay. Uh, but,
0: but, the, <laughs> but, but um, so I studied art history in college. Uh, it's where I figured out I wanted to be a writer. Uh, my senior year, didn't know quite how to about, go about doing it. Um, so I needed to make a living and, I, after graduate school, the job just fell in my lap. I mean, I, I was at a dinner party and the wife of the head of Solomon brothers international was sitting next to me. And afterwards she said, you got to come work for my husband. And he kind of made it happen. So I, I got in the back through the back door yeah, and, uh, and knowing that I wanted to write yeah. and I, I <laughs> there's a, but it'd be I, fun. I It's really... fun to
1: make a couple hundred grand a year. Is, yeah, just and of, you know.
0: also, and, and also, had a sense that like writers are better off. Even then, I didn't know what kind of writer I wanted to be. I actually, oddly, had this funny ambition to be a playwright. Um, but the but I thought writers are always better off having had experiences, having gone gone and done things. Even you know, being on a whaling ship or being a longshoreman or whatever it is, it's like doing anything is better than just sitting and staring at your navel. You just learn things about yourself, about people, about the world. It gives you material to write about. And it was clear even before I got inside Solomon Brothers that I was going to be sitting at the somewhere near the center of the financial universe at a time when the financial universe was more interesting than it had ever been. Yeah. It was exploding. So I had some vague sense that this might be material. I didn't go in thinking I was going to write a book about it, yeah. but I did go in thinking, like, this is something if I learn about one day I might write about.
1: What did you see, if you look back now at Liars Poker, what were the... Signposts that allowed the big short to happen, that allowed obviously the crisis. What, what do you look back now and say? Hmm, I can, I can understand why that. We know why the housing crisis happened, but in behavior on Wall Street and attitude. Where, where, tell me the, 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 the kind of like, oh well, obviously this is going to happen because of what I saw in Liars poker.
0: So I'll preface all this by saying I certainly did not see it coming. Uh, that in fact, why I even got interested in going back to wall street for another book with the big short was I was so shocked by the fact that it happened. And I was shocked, particularly, I mean, look, think about, think about the, the, our financial system that, that from about the, from a few years before the time I go to work at Solomon brothers, all the way up to the financial crisis, the big banks had, almost first call on the talent in the society. This is a highly educated talent. That, you know, a third of the class of Princeton, Harvard, Yale, all want to go work in Stanford, all want to go work in, on Wall Street. And that these people are, so they're supposedly the smartest. They are, um, they're obviously very financially motivated. Uh, the whole point of these businesses is to make money. Um, that, that What shocked me was they blew themselves up that all of a sudden you woke up and Merrill Lynch lost $50 billion and Citigroup had mm-hmm. lost $70 billion and a single trader at Morgan Stanley had lost $10 billion. You thought, like, how did all these supposedly really smart, self-interested people come together and commit suicide? That was the thing that surprised me. Now, after the fact, and when I started to dig into it, I, I, I guess I should have said, I should have I should have seen it coming or should have seen something something coming. Because when you dig into it, what was happening was incentives were getting really screwed up. Um, yeah, the guy lost $10 billion trading bonds at Morgan Stanley, but the year before that, he got a $50 million bonus for getting the, putting those positions on. Yeah. Uh, and you saw the incentives start to get screwed up w- w- in the 80s. And the, the, big, the big change uh, that, that liars connects liars poker to the financial crisis is the world I walk into, with the exception of the firm that I went to work for, all those firms were still partnerships. Like the the people who were making the bets owned the firm. And if the bets went wrong, they didn't just lose their firm. A lot of times they lost their houses. So they weren't going to be making giant bets on subprime mortgages in those firms. The minute they become public corporations and it's other people's money, it's shareholders' money, and the minute the the bonus system starts to incentivize, essentially it started to incentivize selling a lot of catastrophe risk, that you got yourself in a situation where n- nobody was really watching the risk in the way they would if they owned the risk.
1: You think Wall Street today is even more dangerous. I read where you, where you said that. What do you see? You you, you haven't written a book uh, in the year 2022 about where we are, but there's a lot of underpinnings that are going on right now that harken back to the housing bubble crisis. There's a frothiness out there. There is a uh, s- s- certain things don't make sense. And I, you know, to me, there's something in my tummy says we're we're headed for some kind of Armageddon. I, I hate to be a pessimist, but I just living the life I'm an older guy now. I can't believe I say it, I'm an older guy. I sound like such an asshole. But I, I'm not a kid any I'm not a I'm not a kid anymore. I'm in my 60s and just the ebbs and flows, something tells me something's not right in the system.
0: Yeah, I can see why you think that. Um I think when I look at it, when I think of the direction of financial crisis might come from, I think it's changed. I do think that post two thousand and eight, the 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 banks are on a more solid footing. They've got they've got more capital. They've got they've they're 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 taking less of the kind of risk that they took back then. In theory, they're not taking any of it. But they, but they are. They're. A, I don't think I don't think a crisis starts in the banking system. Um, what worries me uh, is, is the federal government. It's, it's the, it's the treasury. It's the, it's the federal reserve. Yeah. Um, it's, it's what worries me is that we have the, the whole financial system is premised on the riskless asset and the U S treasury bond being a riskless asset. There are however many tens of trillions of the dollars of these things out there. It's everybody just happily assumes that the United States is good for it and um that the dollar is the reserve currency of the world the dollar's the dollar's position as a reserve currency is maybe not that threatened but it would not shock me if people start to doubt like our 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 solvency i mean that our our willingness to we're living. We're we're living irresponsibly as a financially as a country oh, and have exactly, been for a long time.
1: If, if I ran a business for years and if you looked at the balance sheet uh, of the U.S. government, you'd say this is an overleveraged, dangerous, dangerous corporation.
0: And and we've been and the Federal Reserve has really inflated the money supply in really dramatic, unprecedented ways, and it's created all kinds of odd distortions in the system. I understand why they did it. I don't. Have, if, I'm not sitting here thinking, oh, I'm, I'd have done it better. I don't yeah. know. Uh, it's it's but it does feel like the problem. You know, you know, one of the characters in The Big Short said, um, "At the bottom of the of the whole of the whole of the run up to the crisis was the desire of Americans to live beyond their means. People were using people were using the inflation in the in the in the housing market to live beyond their means, and it was sort of like." helping people deceive, helping the public deceive itself into thinking it was more affluent than it actually was. Um, and it does feel like that problem hasn't gone I was, was going to say, away.
1: that sounds like today. It does not really
0: gone away. I know I know that individual balance sheets are much sounder than they were back then, and, but it does, it, that. Uh, we don't feel like a completely stable society. And if we feel like a disturbed society. Um, on the other hand, I say that, but if you ask me what I do with my own money, I can't imagine a better investment than than this country. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, a, I'm obviously of two minds about it. Um, I'm not sitting here thinking that oh we're gonna have a financial crisis. I don't know. I mean I, that that's you not. Have, that, that's, I, don't, I don't have exactly the same feeling in my tummy about the financial system. You do. I do have a feeling in my tummy about like just like how disturbed the country feels Oh, well, uh, that
1: that that's in my tummy that's in my head that's that's in my buttocks yeah. that's that's everywhere um premonition of it's, in your, it's in your wait, it's in your buttocks it's in my buttocks it's everywhere <laughs> it, I, <I'm> not, <laughs> it's it's throughout my body you know because i do do all this msnbc stuff so i'm following the news you know pretty intensely yeah, yeah, yeah. every day and and it it You know, I, once again, sound like an old guy. I can't remember us in, in worse shape just in terms of, and obviously so much of this has to do with, with our our former president, but um, it's the institutions are, are so vulnerable at this point in time. The institutions that we take so for granted that it, you know, just starting with democracy and it, it is, we are so on the precipice. It is so fragile right now. And I think the people don't understand that. Certainly 40% of this country does not understand that.
0: I agree with that. I agree with that. That it, it it people have to have take for granted all kinds of things that you really shouldn't take for granted. Uh, what and, and, and you know and if you but if you told me or asked me uh, what it would take for the country to figure out that it can't take like its federal government for granted, um, I'd have. Before the pandemic, I'd have said uh, that would do it—like a million people yeah. dead from a virus that we didn't control properly. That we will rally together and figure out we got problems, and we we didn't. Uh, so that that's one of the reasons I feel so uncomfortable right now. Is I, I I I would have thought the that kind of external threat would be all it would take, and it clearly is going to take more than that uh, before we start to behave in a more cohesive way.
1: That's a good segue into Premonition. Uh, it's almost a year since it's out. And what's fascinating about the book, be it's not a finger-pointed book. You're more focusing on the little heroes that saw it coming, that could have prevented it, and they just, they, they weren't listened to. And if anything, the CDC kind of comes out as, I don't want to say the bad guy, but certainly asleep at the wheel. I mean, it's easy to blame Trump, and he could have been a hero, but it certainly didn't start or end with him. But talk to me about some of your favorite characters and and just, just get the audience up to speed on how sure. some very people you've never heard of saw this thing coming and they just weren't listened to.
0: So- I wouldn't. I put it slightly differently because it wasn't that they were sitting there predicting there was going to be a pandemic, but they were sitting there preparing for one. Okay. Um, and it was, with one exception, there was one of the characters would have said, "I'm predicting that this is going to happen." But it was very similar to the, the, the story. In some ways, is very similar to The Big Short. It, it's a, it's my attempt to, to depict a broken system. Uh, in the big short, it's the financial system. In this case, it's the system of public health in the country and a really complicated system. Um, and who to go to, to, to sort of, to shine lights on that system. In the case of the big short, it was the people who actually had made big bets on the whole thing collapsing. And so they had a certain credibility, um, and they had, but more importantly, they had the ability to teach you what they saw, that they had this lived experience that, that, that na- enabled you to that, that enable them as teachers to sort of show you what was wrong with the financial system. In this case, I went and sort of cast um, the book with three different kinds of people who gave you three different kinds of insight into what was go- what was going on. It wasn't, and it wasn't. It, I don't really think of this as the story of the of the pandemic. It ends in like May of two thousand and twenty. It's a story of the run up to it, and if if you knew that story. You know that we we're gonna have problems when the thing happened. So one of the one of the characters, I love the characters. I think the characters might be the best characters I've ever had. But um uh the two characters who Richard Hatchett and Carter Mesher, uh, both doctors, both not political people. In fact, nobody in the book is really a political person. They're all, all right. kind of doctors. Yeah. Um, uh, who were brought into the Bush White House when Bush realizes that um second Bush, Bush the, the son, that, that we don't have a pandemic plan. And they're brought, brought as part of a team to figure out what the plan should be. And they're assigned, Richard Hatchett and Carter Mesher are their names. And they're assigned this particular sliver of the problem that is actually the most explosive part of the problem. What do you do between the time the, of the disease shows up, pandemic disease, and the time you have a vaccine? They're thinking about the flu, but it applies to anything. And, uh, and so at the t- they were both... So Car- Carter Mesher, let's take one of the characters. What I loved about him was, you know, he's an ADHD doctor. It, it, that he just, like, attention... His attention... He has attention for nothing except in a crisis. And ends up being this fantastic emer- ICU doctor. He's unbelievable in, in the clutch, saving people's lives, and he, he, he's able to port that ability. He goes from, in his career, from saving lives to saving a broken hospital, to saving a broken hospital system, to saving a society. Uh, he, he, and he does stuff in the White House that's just intellectually really interesting. Like when he, when they show up, there's a conventional wisdom in the public health world that social interventions like, I don't know, closing schools or whatever it is you're doing or closing churches or socially distancing people are, don't work. That, and there's this, that they don't work and the people won't do them and they cost too much, all that. And this wisdom goes back to 1918 when lots of different cities tried lots of different things. And from a 50,000 foot view, it looked like, oh, well, they all got the, they had deaths everywhere. What Carter and Richard do in the White House is they go reinvestigate the history of the 1918 pandemic. And they find that, oh, no, 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 it wasn't the same everywhere. Uh, That St. Louis had half the deaths or a third of the deaths of Philadelphia. And the reason they had that is that they introduced these interventions earlier in relation to the arrival of disease in the city and they slowed it. And and so these things really actually did work. And by the way, we haven't really done this in this country yet, but someone's going to go back and say, uh, Miami has tripled the deaths of San Francisco. Why? It's,
1: well, the I, 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 it's, not, it's not hard to figure out.
0: No, not hard to figure out, right? So, no, well, well, you. but if I were taking the other side, I might say, oh, maybe Miami has more older people. Right. You know, there are other things you might say. So, right. but, but yes, you're right that there is a a postmortem to do that they that never was properly done in in 1918, that they went and did going through old news articles. And I mean, it's a really riveting kind of exercise. And then they go and persuade the entire U.S. public health infrastructure that it's a smart idea to have, depending on the potential severity of the virus, um, to have different, different kinds of interventions that you would, you would introduce. And they sell the pub, not only the CDC, they write the CDC's plan. The CDC's plan is distributed around the world I mean, if you go talk to people in Australia, like what, what, where their playbook came from to, to minimize death is from this. So, uh, the, but these people, it, it, when you read the story of how hard it was for them to sell the idea in the United States, even before Trump, this is back in 2005, six, seven. Sure. Um, you would have seen how hard it was going to be to execute once it happened. And in particular, what they found was even with like public health people who were very resistant to like being willing to get into political warfare about like sure. closing schools, um, the only thing that persuaded them was children's deaths. So if, that, that in, in a case of a flu, you get a lot of kids sick and dying. That only the emotional punch of, of the threat to children's lives swayed people in a room yeah. when they were presented with this plan. So you could see that if there was some, if some pathogen happened to sweep through that didn't really do much damage to children, but did a lot of damage to older people, you might have a different political response, even within the public health.
1: It's funny, my marketing instincts told me that because I talked a lot on television about what, how do you get people to get vaccinated? And I said, make it about the kids. You know, like, yes. if you're not gonna do it for yourself, do it for the children. And, and that's, that. there's no greater motivator for any action than children being harmed, children being hurt, children being killed.
0: That's right. Field. That's exactly right. That's now, exactly what, right.
1: The other hero of the story, and I say that facetiously, is John Bolton, who came in and fired these guys. Oh, well, so that's the interest.
0: Yeah, that's, a, this is just, a, it's almost a footnote. But so Carter and Richard, I, I, arguably the, the world's greatest experts in, in pandemic management at the federal level. In any case, the people who watched them do what they did um, were in awe of them. Obama keeps them keeps Carter on into the Obama administration. Um, uh, Tom Bossert, who was with them in the Bush White House, was also in the Trump White House in the, in Homeland Security. Bossert, when he gets there in the beginning of the Trump administration, says to Trump, says to the people around him, says, "If we have a pandemic, there are two guys I want running it. Their names are Carter, Mesher, and Richard Hatchett. Can I, you know, can I badge them in now so we don't have to waste a day if we need them?" So that, it's all teed up for, for these guys to run any kind of pandemic response. And John Bolton comes in, fires Bossert, and with Bossert goes basically the institutional memory of these two guys. So when the pandemic hits, Hatchet is running an organization in London, and Carter Mesh is working for the VA, but people don't even know he's there, and he's basically kind of writing emails in his underpants in his, in his bedroom in Atlanta and writing these single best emails about what's going on in the world he's got a complete bead on what's going on in china got a complete clear argument about what we need to do and he can't get himself heard so that's this is a bigger problem with the federal government that we don't we don't preserve institutional expertise as efficiently as we should that it shouldn't have been that hard to find those guys right away uh, to deal with the problem, and it shouldn't it shouldn't rely on the accident of John Bolton firing Tom Bossard.
1: That's a good segue into the podcast, the new season. Um, yeah, it's it it is uh, some it must must hear podcast against the rules season three just dropped. Um, Talk to us about the essence of season three and, and are the seven episodes. How many episodes in season three? It's
0: every season. So let me let me just describe the Enterprise a little bit. Yeah, well, do want you just it,
1: to just to people out to listen. A, talk to me about season one and two. We're just kind of so, so it's a,
0: it's a it's a little di- it's a different Enterprise than this because it's it's scripted. It's I am I I'm slave slaving over the writing of the thing, mm-hmm. and it's really like they the things that we do they look like film scripts before we record them, and they're stories. And the conceit for the whole show it's, which is now in its third season third year, is I wanted to take a character like a role in American life and explore what happened to it through a series of seven stories so the first and the first season was about about referees in American life, the second season was about coaches, coaches and the third season is about experts. experts and and the they're all authority figures it's all about it's all about the volatility of the role and and problems with the role. So um, this particular season, I wanted to do experts because I just finished the premonition, and I was one way to look at the U.S. pandemic response, which was appalling, is as a as an expert problem. We didn't figure out. We never. There was never any consensus about who knew and who should be listened to, um, and just the reverse. The kind of people who actually had on the ground battlefield sort of experience fighting disease were local public health officials. They were low status. They were buried in our society, and they had they they didn't have the moral the the, the moral or political authority to do the job they needed to do. And um, you know, I fixed that in the premonition. I sort of redressed that problem by making one of these local public health officers a woman, the main character of the story. And she dazzles you with her understanding of what should be done uh, and dazzles you with the bravery of, with which she did what she did. That led me to, like, okay, let's just, let's have a, let's take a back away and do a, a broader thing about experts. And it wanders a little bit. It's not, it's, it's seven different stories and addresses um, the problem from sev- several different angles. I mean, like, we have one episode, one episode is it's kind of the Moneyball episode. The kind of two episodes that sort of related to Moneyball in that it was really interesting to me after Moneyball to watch the way who the expert was in professional sports changed that, it, that instead of the guy who had spent his career in the minor leagues and worked his way up in the organization, it was a, a geek with a laptop who was, who was all of a sudden making the decisions about yeah. how to build a team that, that. The, exist, the data is kind of a new thing. You know, we, you know it's the last <laughs> 40, 50 years, we, we've, and really only in the last kind of 20 years that we've really had the ability to gather and analyze huge piles of data. Yeah. And that has transformed who the expert is in a lot of spaces. Uh, so we devote an episode to that. Um, related to that is, uh, there's an episode about, about fields in which the experts have clearly gotten better but that the people who consume the expertise clearly think the experts have gotten worse. Oddly, I'll give you an example. Of give this. me an example, yeah. yeah. Well, there are several examples. Um, well, medicine is a great example. Yeah. You talk to any doctor. I mean, they know, they know more now than they did 10 years ago and a lot more than they did 20 years ago. And 100 years ago, they were more likely to kill you than to help you. Yeah, we go, uh, go on we,
1: WebMD or anywhere on the net. We're all That's, right. All and that's exactly ourselves. right.
0: They yeah. say, yeah. That it, you know, you had a sense of what might happen in the pandemic. You talk to nurses and doctors and say, yeah, this is outrageous that we have people thinking that we're trying to kill them when they come to the hospital. But um, But if you'd have watched what was happening around here before that, you'd have found there's enormous confusion. Uh, in the in the patient base about the nature of our expertise, that they're much more likely to come in thinking they know when yeah. they don't know, yeah. and much less likely to actually just listen to what we have to say. So every, every, even doctor, we, tell,
1: every doctor tells me that uh, my friends are the yeah. doctors. So we, I got to deal with everybody walking in telling me no, no, no. I, I read this, and you know, it's it's I, I, I can't wait to it, listen to it. It's it's
0: but but like but the doctor's one example, but uh, weathermen. You, you talk to an old weatherman, like the guy who's been doing the weather on the, uh, in the I, we have a character characters, like second most famous person in Alabama. His name is James Spann, and he's been the weatherman for 50 years. And he says, you know, when I started out, I, I, I kind of look outside and say, you know, it's the sun's out. Right. And that my 10 my day forecast would have been useless. Not as you could have done better guessing, or I was well guessing. The three day forecast was kind of, eh, uh, you know, I, I couldn't, I didn't know anything. He said, but I was on the air pretending to be completely certain. He said I was Ron Burgundy. You know, I was out (laughs) there and I was like, we knew. And he says, my career has been, I know more and more and more about the weather. My 10-day forecast is actually now not bad. My three-day forecast is like three times as accurate as it used to be. And and especially with like deadly weather events, like predicting where the tornado is going to touch down and wind and hurricanes. He says, it's, this has just been transformed. We used to know nothing. Now we know a lot. He said, but I sound less certain because I'm speaking in terms of probabilities. I'm saying 70% chance, 60% chance. This yeah. And the effect is people doubt me in ways they didn't used to doubt me when I didn't know any.
1: Yeah, he's so much more equipped to actually do a good job. And, interesting. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so and you see, yeah. he
0: says, "You see, he's he the bane of his existence. Is this is the bane of all these people's existence? Is that they tell the people the tornado's about to hit their house, and the people don't listen? And, I mean, we have these incredibly deadly events that are completely avoidable because there's a gap between, there's this disconnect between the experts and the people who need the experts. Um, similar, it's a similar situation to the medical situation." Um, so we explore that in another episode. This seven, I love it. I actually love the season. It's kind of, it's a, the, the, I'm not quite finished it. The episode I'm working on just about to record is about, is about the role men, especially male overconfidence plays in interfering with expertise. Um, uh, that, you know, the whole mansplaining thing, that, that the guy who knows less is telling the woman who knows more about her own business. But you start to explore this overconfidence and where it goes and the society's tendency to view men as experts quicker than they view women as experts. There's a whole There's a whole thing. There's a Facebook group of female doctors who've had the experience of being on airplanes, when there is a medical emergency, and they
1: don't, and they the don't, want, they attend- don't want them. The people don't want them being being taken care of by them.
0: It's worse. The flight attendant says, "Is there a doctor on the plane?" She raises her hand, and the flight attendant just walks by, <laughs> uh, and, and it, it, it just like, what, "I'm here, I'm here," and right. no, it, um, uh, it's a rich subject. It's sort of because it, it, it takes you to this place that's interesting to me anyway. Of like. How knowledge gets distributed in the society. I, 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 if you back away from America, we've been like magically good at generating new knowledge. We are incredibly innovative. In, 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 we are the home to all the greatest research universities. We are our, our the federal government has been an unbelievable source of generation of knowledge. That we are a knowledge creation factory, and we are so dumb. Like, how is this knowledge? How are we so good at creating knowledge and so bad at using it? That that's that's sort of the big
1: picture. Yeah, I don't know if you're doing if this is a part of the episodes, but one of the problems is technology. Is that basically everybody can create their own truths now? Uh, You create bespoke media. You can whatever you believe, you can find. So it's it's so hard to separate real fact from fiction.
0: So I think that's definitely part of the story. Definitely part of the story is the knowledge is complicated. So if all of a sudden you're asked to do probabilistic thinking, uh, it's just hard to, harder to evaluate the expertise. If the, if the weatherman tells me that there's a, 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 only a, a 30% chance of rain and I go and plan a picnic and I get rained on, I don't think, oh, well, there was a 30% chance of rain three in 10 times this was going to happen. I think the weatherman's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking yeah. about. I mean, people don't think it. It's sort of like the human mind is not equipped to move as fast as our society has moved in generating knowledge. Uh, that the kind of ex- those kind of experts who deal in probabilistic judgments have trouble making themselves understood to their audience. Uh, Nate Silver, really good example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, political M- forecasting. Everybody thinks he doesn't know anything because he said there was a the Hillary Clinton it was, was a- going to win by by the way seventy percent.
1: Yeah. yeah, but I mean what people they weren't paying attention to the to the actual states that make, you know, everybody was like, oh, Hillary's up by four points. She by yeah, and she did win by 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 two or three percentage points. It did, didn't matter. She lost the states that matter. All right, Michael, final question, because you've been so generous with your time. You know, the essence of this program is that the, the thesis that everything is a brand today. Every person, every celebrity, every company, every product is every everything is a brand. And then the question I ask everybody, so, so tell me the Michael Lew- what's the Michael Lewis brand? Got you know,
0: that's a you could probably tell me better than I could tell you, but you put me on the spot because I haven't really thought about that. Mm-hmm. But if I, I would say some that his books are fun and they teach me things. I think that's So it's sort of like fun education.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it's, uh, I would add on to that, that you take some of the most complex problems, situations, realities, and distill them to their essence so that they're very, very digestible. Okay, we'll i will we'll buy it. I'll buy that
0: brand. I'll buy that brand. But I, I don't, I'm i not sure I have I think that. Your brand, I, brand. I
1: think your brand is, if you hire me, I'd say the best nonfiction writer in the world. All right, that, that, oh, that's, that's, nice that, of you. that's my brand. That's my okay. brand for you. I appreciate, my friend, you are so generous with your time today. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Let totally me just fun. do a couple of more plugs. The new audio edition of Liars Poker is out. Uh, against the rules, new podcast is out. You 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 gotta gotta get it. Gotta listen to that. And although it's a year old, let me pre- let me also just because it's just still so relevant today, the premonition of pandemic story, and everything else Michael Lewis does, you can't get enough of it. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Donny. Thanks for listening to On Brand with Donny Deutsch. Uh, remember to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts: Apple, Spotify, any place else. Please rate us and please subscribe uh, and review us. And you can watch our videos on YouTube. Uh, You can uh, subscribe on YouTube. We'd love if you do that. and Leave your comments. And have a safe week. We'll see you next. We'll we'll see you. Maybe we'll see you. Maybe you listen to us next time on our Bread. Don't do it. Hi, this is Jim Jeffries. I have a podcast out called I Don't Know About That. Each episode is a different subject. We bring an expert on and I say everything I think I know about that subject. And then they correct me. Join in. Listen to the podcast you'll have a laugh and you might learn something. Follow, rate and review. I don't know about that with Jim Jeffries. Now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. You can also catch video releases each week on YouTube.